Blog Talk Radio. Celebrating their 20th year in radio broadcasting. With news not heard in the news, the International Taz and Paula Show interviews experts from all walks of life, bridging research and personal life journeys, revealing new ways to unleash life with a passion of a heartbeat. And now, here's Taz and Paula. Well, you're listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula, and I'm so sorry to say that Taz is not going to be with us today, but she's here in spirit. Well, the state of global politics is pretty disheartening, but a better world is possible if we spend a little more time listening to the messages our hearts are telling us and having the courage to act on it accordingly. Today's guest is the author uh, of the Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All. And I believe in my full heart that this is going to have the power to shake things up for the better. Uh, Stephen Dynan has been um, with the Shift Network forever. I mean, I've I've been listening to all the the things that the Shift has been doing. And uh, he's been uh, in for years and years leading in organizations as what I mentioned, the Shift Network, and being a key member of the Transformational Leadership Council and Evolutionary Leaders. Sacred America offers an inspiration path forward with innovative ideas that bridge left and right. It's a wise and beautifully written book that addresses political reforms and the evolution of democracy and breakthrough solutions in realms ranging from climate change to microfinance to peace building. And the foreword was written by one of my favorite authors, Marianne Williamson. She says that Stephen is one of the evolutionary leaders we need most now, which I believe that is so true. And I'm so excited and I'm so honored, Stephen, to have you with us today. Paula, what a beautiful, generous introduction. Thank you for the warm welcome. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I'm going to start this off with a great, big, huge question. Uh, what was the purpose of the of, for you to write the book? Well, I, I really believe that we are in this time of upgrading, having a, sh- a larger shift on planet Earth and really a, a collective awakening to a new way of being. And the only way that that can really happen is uh, on a wide scale is if America goes to the next level. We have a huge influence on not only the economy, but the culture, the technology, everything really that's going on in the world. America and particularly our political culture has a huge impact. And so when we have a a political system that's essentially going backwards in certain ways and not liberating our full potential and not fulfilling our full highest mission, that's going to be a really big barrier to us making a collective shift to really a peaceful and prosperous planet. So I realized this uh, some time ago and started started writing more about like how how do we we achieve a higher octave of what America is here to do, and uh, and then I got the inner guidance that it really needed to come out this year, and it's 
become more and more evident that uh, the reason for that is that we have a level of polarization and almost like the separation into two warring nations uh, between red states and blue states and the the, the level of um, uh, of vitriol sure. in politics has gotten really quite ugly into a level of violence. And so what I'm trying to do is really be a kind of a third force, a healing force that's saying, you know what, ultimately we're all on the same team. We're all invested in growing America to the next level. We're all unless invested in creating a, a country that really works for the greatest number, that liberates as much of our creativity and ingenuity and uh, ability to create an, an amazing place as possible. And, uh, and to do that, it's going to take us unwinding certain of these combat patterns that we're in in terms of our political process. So, so I'm really trying to chart the path towards a, first a, a sacred way to engage our politics, a respectful way to engage political discourse, and also to point the way towards solutions that really take harvest the best from the left and the right to create something that is uh, far more effective. Well, I think it's time for the silent majority to be heard. I mean... Stop being silent. <laughs> it was it a co- was it a coincidence, or did you plan it this way that the book came out just before the presidential election? Well, I, I actually got wanted it to come out on July fifth for a specific reason because July fourth we're celebrating our independence as a country, which is an important thing to mark and to note that we to, to become a separate self, if you will, is. It's a it's a mark of our maturation, but to really be a healthy, contributive, um, you know, noble-minded adult, we have to move into interdependence, where we actually are both building upon our independence, but also recognizing that we're part of a of a larger whole, and that our role within that needs to be one of service, of of, of building alliances and and creating synergy. And so, I kind of see July 5th as the natural day of like, where do we go next as a country? How do what's the next level of the American dream? What's the next level of beyond independence into interdependence? Yes, that's true. You know, uh, last month I went to Italy, and uh, the Italians were kind of making fun of our election. (laughs) So, I mean, they're they're listening to what's happening to us. I mean, it's a global... It's 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 front of front front page news around the world what's happening in our election partially because we have such an outsized effect on the rest of the world so there's a lot of people with a stake in uh, America going to the next level and getting beyond the current problems that are dividing us so it really is it's important not just for us but really for the whole planet that we that we do first of all, take really seriously our duty as citizens and say, you know, it's not a, it doesn't work for us to sit, at, sit it out and just sit on the sidelines. We have to bring the greatest depth of wisdom we can, the most heart, the most healing kind of spirit to, to help to, to, bring, to bridge the divides that are, that are threatening really to, to devolve into, into something that's really quite ugly. I know a lot of people I talk to are cynical, <laughs> and um, they say, why vote, you know? It doesn't count anyway. They, the politicians don't do what we want them to do anyway, so why do you even go out and vote? So that has to change. Well, I would say that you take it, I mean, voting is a sort of a prerequisite to have an impact in our, in, because our vote is basically an expression of our consciousness. It's like if we're, if we're to want to create more conscious businesses, we vote with our dollars. Every dollar is a vote of what kind of companies that we want to support. Same way with same way with our government is like not only every vote but literally every engagement we have with our political process. That could be how we speak about it to our friends and allies. Could be writing a column in in a 
a local newspaper. It could be um, hosting a living room conversation about about bridging uh, political divides, uh, and it can be also actually taking the time to to uh, do some citizen lobbying with our with our Congress congressional representatives or local representatives. So the more engaged we are, each of those actions is helping to bump the system in the positive direction. So if we're just cynical and disengaged, basically we're giving somebody else the right to to nudge nudge our system in the in a different direction than we ultimately might want. Yeah, and it, uh, what you mentioned, it'd be good to become. Uh, involved in your local politics, you know, start there, because that's where the you can do more change, I would think. Well, it's, it's ultimately, it's, it's important that we take actions in a way that, that create some sort of positive impact, because it's, it's empowering to do so, and it, it doesn't have to be a huge thing, and it can, it can be to go to a local, uh, local city council meeting, it can be to uh, give a small donation to a, a local organization that, you, that, that matters, it can be reaching out to, um, to a, a neighbor and saying, hey, let's, let's, um, let's sit down and get to know each other. It's like these small actions add up, and so what I like to do is every time that there's a piece of news that I find really destructive or dismaying, I like to take small actions that help to to push things in a positive direction. So give an example, like when there's been a terrorist incident and people are uh, shocked and dismayed and, and really uh, broken down around it, which, which is, it's heartbreaking. Uh, so I will often make a, I will often go to Kiva.org and make an additional uh, lo- micro loan to a developing world entrepreneur in an Islamic country. And that's a little signal from me to somebody else saying, hey, we got your back. We want to see you grow. We want to see you prosper. We don't want to foster increased suspicion or hostility between uh, Islam and the West, which is part of the source of the terrorism, and that, that that's something that we want to minimize and that we want to sort of say we're, we're in this together. We're one human family. We can live respectfully on this planet. So that's just like a, a little signal to the universe, but those things do add up. Well, you talk about uh, in your book, Sacred Citizenship. Is that part of that? I mean, what we're just now mentioning? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think it's important for those of us on a path of growth and um, healing and, and transformation to really recognize that we can't ultimately become our full potential if we live in a dysfunctional society. So we have to take responsibility and say, you know, it's yes, grow ourselves, become more conscious to create, uh, create our lives as a reflection of the, uh, of the beauty and depth and peace and, and possibility that, that we have in our own hearts but then to actually take responsibility for some portion of our collective shifting in that positive direction as well. And so sacred citizenship is really a concept of saying that taking on our citizenship as a spiritual practice, and it can, it can be from um, studying up on the issues, and I think it's important that we read things from both the left and the right, and there's a reason for that, because if we just only, only, learn, only take in media and opinions that reinforce our opinion, we can get more and more entrenched in one sense of identity, and we can sometimes polarize against the other side. And that polarization is what decreases understanding and increases tension and eventually kind of shuts down the political process. So each of us has a role in creating the bridges where there, where there currently divides, and that begins in our heart, it begins in what we read, it begins how we educate ourselves, what media we consume, 
And um, and so as we do that, and then we then we it's important that we take some form of leadership, um, and that can be in our in our in our living room to from creating a house party for what I'm advocating with the book is to create American Evolution house parties where all are all are welcome provided that they're uh, they're basically acting in a respectful and collaborative way. That it's not we can we can explore our political differences, and that diversity can be a source of great innovation and innovation um, because it's it, it really diversity is the the source of of how of newness. And so when we can when we can embrace that diversity of political perspectives and do what I call political cross-training and think about issues from different perspectives and really inhabit somebody else's shoes, we're going to come up with better solutions and ultimately be able to talk about things in a way that can get more people aligned and, and move move things forward rather than stay stuck in gridlock. I, I know this sounds crazy, but I listen to radio shows that have the complete opposite opinions as, as I normally do, and I actually do learn from listening to other people's points of views. So well that's uh, that's exactly the kind of practice of sacred citizenship I'm talking about. Um and it's very easy for us to avoid that. I I give the example in the book of when I in the 2008 when Sarah Palin was the vice presidential candidate. She was really like nails on a chalkboard for me and I just found myself really hating her and which was not typical of me at all. <laughs> and what I instead of just rehearsing that though, I took I took it upon myself to read both of her books. And so I I read both of them and I began to appreciate different aspects of her upbringing and who she was and hard choices she had made, such as bringing in a Down syndrome baby. There was a way I connected with her on a more of a heart and human level, and that softened the political divide, and I began to just see and respect her as another fellow being who has a right to be here and has a right to her political opinion and that that didn't need to be demonizing her. And at the end of that, I wrote an article for Huffington Post called uh, Dissolving the Palin Prejudice, and it ended up being something that, you know, got a lot of fan mail from people on the right because uh, they felt they felt like I had I genuinely sought to understand their worldview and where they were coming from and why they were backing excited supporters of her, and it really opened my eyes to the ways that I was I was subconsciously through judgment and marginalizing, not being able to step into somebody else's shoes and therefore closing myself off to a whole body of people out there who think and, and believe the way Sarah was believing. And that, by rejecting a political leader, <clears throat> oftentimes we reject the people who are supporting that political leader as well. So it's, it has implications <clears throat> on a very practical level as well as um, the inner level of by closing our heart to certain people and certain um, parts, certain subcultures within America, we're ultimately going to end up far more divided and less intelligent about how do we go to the next level because we want to take everybody's needs into account. I know I saw the her the movie about her life when she, you know I forget the name of the movie but it was about her and it really made my heart go out for her because she really suffered during that campaign. So. Yeah, no and that's the the human the human factor as well as like when we think of political leaders there's so much so much hatred and venom and negativity that's trained on political leaders that can be really damaging to your system. And so there's a certain amount of defense, defensiveness that can come up. I, I see this in Hillary Clinton, for instance. The people that I know who know her say that she's in, enormously warm and sweet and quite kind and giving with the people around her, very considerate. And and yet when she steps into the political sphere, she often has to play 
made a lot tougher and she's more defended and, and that partially contributes to where people don't trust her. But that, that some of that is a reflection of our political culture, which has essentially been become uh, a, a very violent political culture where people are just looking to exploit weakness and and attack each other, and and so shifting that culture is actually central to Amer- to liberating America's full potential. And one of the ways I think about it is that we need the culture to come into masculine and feminine balance. Because when it's all attack and and exploit we- weakness and and essentially high competition, low collaboration, we we basically freeze up our our full potential, and we and we don't we don't actually have the the, the transpartisan bridge building that that creates real solutions. So I'll give an example of a transpartisan um, a bridge that is that is very constructive for our, our society. Van Jones is a prominent progressive leader and CNN commentator, and he's partnered up with Newt Gingrich on something called Cut 50, which is an initiative to reduce prison populations by 50%. So they came together recognizing there was common ground, both from a social justice standpoint on the left as well as fiscal responsibility standpoint on the right, to cut down on the prison populations and to advocate ways to do that as a, a bipartisan or even transpartisan approach. So, so these kind of connections have to build from personal connections and reaching across the aisle and, and beginning first in our own, taking, taking, not taking our own assumptions for granted and as you're doing, being exposed to different media, being exposed to people thinking in a different way, being curious about where people's worldview and and values and priorities are coming from, and that gives us a lot more sympathetic way and compassionate way to engage them. Well, it's like you were talking about Hillary. It's almost as though she's afraid to show the feminine part of her personality because in the political world, you're not supposed to. Right, and so and that can be exploited, and so it makes a certain amount of sense, but but what we really need ultimately, we need more women to run for office and we need to have more permission for the men to show their feminine side as well because when the masculine and feminine are balanced in ourselves, in our society, in our families, in our communities, that's when we really get a sacred sense of wholeness, when when there's a deep honoring of uh, of this kind of root polarity in the human psyche of the masculine and feminine when those things are when they're in balance rather than at war with each other we end up with um with health and happiness and and abundance we end up with loving families we end up with um a, a real sense of being relaxed as who we are and so so the shifting of the political culture to become more balanced between masculine and feminine and the, and really the resurgence of the feminine i i see as central to America fulfilling its purpose, which is part of why I put the Statue of Liberty on the front cover of my book, because she's our most prominent symbol of the feminine and the impulse to to bring us your poor, your your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. It's a very compassionate statement of the kind of mothering impulse of America. And we, we often, have, if you think about it, if we think about the government of America, we, we often think of it as in, in more of the strong masculine form rather than the kind of nurturing feminine form. He must have been reading my mind because that was going to be one of my questions, <laughs> was how why you put that on your front cover so that really answers it i mean when you talked about just now it just gave me chills because mm. we've forgotten that part of our country yeah and 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 go ahead i was going to say the women in the congress seem like they're not um as bad as the men i mean they they listen to the other side 
I see that in Congress. Yeah, in fact, there's you know about 20% representation of women in in Congress right now, and when we've had some real stalemates, um, it's often the women who are or creating the bridges and building the divides um, because like in the Senate, the, the women, the, the democratic women and the Republican women have a kind of women's caucus and breakfast together and often attend each other's social functions. It's something that used to be more true with the men as well, but it, that's broken down over time. So there's less and less socializing between left and right. And that, that really, we really pay a price for that because when there isn't a social bond of trust, when you get into these heated arguments, it can be really easy easy to just you know progressively demonize more and more and just get more and more entrenched in your opinions so the so the women by creating a like a little subculture within the senate of of a where they're they're more unified in being women and human beings than they are just by their party labels, that actually means that they can help get things done when when it's required and so that's an example of how more women in politics is starting to shift the culture. And as we get closer to 50-50 balance, we're really going to, uh, I think, liberate something very different in our culture. So I, I'm a big advocate of, of campaigns and initiatives to bring more women into politics, which can be challenging because, because it, is, it is a hard knock and very aggressive culture right now. And so, you know, a couple of women that I've helped support for running for office is like they can take a lot of hits and it's really, it's quite painful to, to run for office. And, and yet it's, it's a noble path to do so in service to the greater good. I think you wrote uh, somewhere I read that um, some politicians are more for their party than for the country. Well, I think that that's become ever more evident. You know, I think that it's actually become a not something you have to even be secretive about. You know, Mitch McConnell, when when uh, Obama first took office, said that their main goal uh, coming up in the Congress was simply to deny uh, Obama a second term, and that so that's essentially saying that like uh, trying to advance our party agenda is and to win in this kind of war of parties was more important than serving the serving the constituents of our country. And so we see that commonly now that it's it really is, you know, the the Supreme Court nomination is is another example where right. there's a stalling a stalling of that which historically was unthinkable that this would this wouldn't happen on either side but as the battle lines get more and more hardened and there's more and more um negative a negative energy between the parties you it, everything gets interpreted as like whether it's it's a it's a point to add to the column for for one side or the other, and so the interests of party get put before the interests of the people, and that's really that's that's really what we have to shift. And I, you know, I I see it shifting in small amounts, but I think your book is going to really help it to shift faster. That's why I was so well, I think, excited about your book. Yeah. Well, I think that what I'm trying to point the way is that it's we have to get beyond just kind of tolerating each other. We have to really take it on as as a kind of a spiritual practice to engage in a deeper way with other political positions. And like I gave the example of Sarah Palin, or sometimes in my book talks I talk about my uh, father-in-law, who's a very tough Republican guy, and at first thought I was too much of a uh, kind of call me more of a New Age wimp or something. And I had to prove <laughs> myself to him, and and ultimately I asked him to mentor me in business, and he said, no, you're too much of a wimp. Uh, but then I said, well, what would convince you I'm not too much of a wimp? And he said, if you can survive 
three months of mixed martial arts, I'll mentor you in business. And, and so I did, and actually did mixed martial arts for a while after that. And, and so he, he had more respect for the toughness that's required to do business. And there, there's, a, there's a way in which the right tends to prioritize strength and toughness and that more, more masculine virtues in many ways. And we need that. We, we don't want to, that to go away. We want to honor that. But we want it to just be in balance with what would be more feminine virtues of uh, tend to be more collaborative and caring and, and a bit more sensitive to the impact of, of how things land with people. And so that there's a way in which when those two, two things are in balance rather than at war with each other, we end up with a healthy culture. And, um, and so we, we have to learn from and appreciate other political positions and actually grow from them rather than uh, retreat from them and, and complain about them. Well, what I thought interesting was the uh, Broadway show Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out now, and uh, I don't know how many uh, leaders went, but I know Obama went to see it and Hillary went to see it. So I think there's a, a message coming through in subconsciously <laughs> somewhere. What do you see that message as? Um, maybe to get back to what the um, the founders of our nation wanted, you know, to, to be patriotic and, and, you know, to, well, like Hamilton had big visions. And so it's like, it, just, it doesn't seem like we have those big visions anymore. And we have so much opportunity to have visions, um, mm-hmm. like to. Anyway, I just thought that that was. I agree. I yeah, agree with so. you. And part of what I I was am explicitly doing in my book, Sacred America, Sacred World, is to is to paint a, a vision of possibility, of of what does America look like on the next level? How do we evolve the American dream beyond materialism to to really one in which we are are self-actualizing and fulfilling our deepest soul purpose for being here. And we're we're growing from experiences rather than accumulating more material goods and ultimately undermining the health of the planet. So there's a way in which we paint a picture in which America really works and that we do have healthy political leadership and a more enlightened system and that we have reformed our uh, getting money out of politics and reformed our banking system and we're actually living sustainably and on, with more renewable energy and we've we've created um, a foundation for real peace in the world all these things are possible and we we if we if we fail to imagine them then we're basically stuck doing what we've been doing we have to imagine a greater possibility we have to imagine success before we can create it and so what I'm doing with this book is, is raising, again, our aspirations as a people to, to fulfill a high and noble purpose, which I really articulate and see in the, some of the founding codes, such as e pluribus unum, which is our national motto. It really means far more than just unifying 13 colonies into one nation. E pluribus unum is more of a it's, it's a spiritual mission to lead towards greater wholes. It's to, to demonstrate oneness within diversity. 
And so oneness within diversity is, is a very, it, it's an art form to create, and we have to continue to, to stretch into that. And right now we're, we're challenged on a, a number of different fronts because uh, particularly around political parties, but also the relationship between uh, America and Islam is very strained right now, and that is something that needs to shift. We need to kind of embrace Islam in a much deeper way um, and to respect the foundations of religion, so that we're working together to help to uh, to get rid of and to and to contain some of the more violent and terror, you know, you know, jihadist kind of sentiment that is that is undermining the the larger good. So that is uh, it's it's important for us to really find this um, find the the next level expression of the impulse towards greater oneness. And I see that ultimately is happening not just within America, but really on a planetary scale, and that America can choose, and I believe and hope that we will choose, to lead the way by demonstrating more oneness with the, the world's people and more oneness within our borders and among all the different creeds and religions um, and cultures that we've accumulated here, which when we're, when we're, when we're in a, at our best, we really do. But we do have these lingering biases and lingering fears and suspicions that can be flamed and, and turned into different kinds of racism and polarization. Well, you talk about the shadow part of our country is, and uh, that we need to heal that. Do you, how would you suggest and how we would heal that? Well, I think that it starts by, first of all, acknowledging that shadow work is important for our country um, because just as with individuals, whatever we keep in the shadows and keep suppressed or keep out of our conscience can come back and bite us in different ways. And so when we haven't done shadow work, we can be more inflated, we can be more full of ourselves, and oftentimes we're compensating for what's in the shadow. We might have a sense of inferiority or a sense of being hurt, and so then we create this more inflated sense of ourselves. So on, on a national level, we've got a couple of big areas for shadow work, uh, one of which is, is our original Native American genocide. It's, it's not a small thing that when, when white settlers came to this land that there were 14 million to 18 million Native Americans and only 1 million 100 years later. It's actually a holocaust of, of our own that is larger than the holocaust of the Jews by Hitler. Um, and so it's it's something that we really have to face and work with and actually do deeper kinds of healing with indigenous peoples and, and a form of kind of uh, reintegrating them into our national culture in a much deeper way than we have because our reservations are often some of the poorest and most depressed places and, and really often some of the more hopeless places in our country. And, and really, I think that, that Native peoples had a great gift for the white settlers, which is uh, a kind of culture that was much more connected to and, and, and reverent of, of nature, of animals, of plants, of living in, in a kind of harmonious way with the natural environment, which, which we really need now. We would need to come back into that more grounded, humble, earthy way of being as a way to, to, to balance out some of the excesses that we've, we've developed as a country. There also is a strong emphasis on the good of the tribe over the good of the individual. And so some of our individualism can run amok and we can get too individualistic and then essentially become narcissistic and self-absorbed. So I think a Native culture has a lot to teach about, about the good of the tribe in balance with the good of, good of the individual. And so we missed an opportunity to integrate 
the, the wisdom stream of Native culture uh, in a deeper way into our national identity. And so the way you, there's a lot of things we can do moving forward. You can do things on a very practical level from you know economic empowerment programs on reservations. We can do things on the learning level with like really learning from uh, Native elders. And we have a Global Indigenous Wisdom Summit every year online, and we've had a number of courses we can we can in, engage in helping to rectify things politically. We've done some fun, fundraisers for um, an indigenous council of the Americas, where native leaders were assembling from all the Americas to help to advance um, their rights and their um, and their people. And um, and I think that we can we can do a lot in terms of also um, healing and reconciliation work. So some of it is just being very um, open to the idea and being really curious and inquisitive and then and sensing where we're guided to to make a positive impact you know so that's just one area and we've we've chosen to do a number of things with the shift network in that direction um, with also with the African American population it's like there is, still is a, ver- a very serious legacy of slavery that hasn't hasn't been fully purged from the American psyche and it flares up with uh, with a lot of you know the, the different kind of racial violence and discrimination and the sort of the the, the polarization of of um, police forces against uh, against black people in particular has been quite extreme, and so we do have to face that as a country and help to heal the history and to and to right the wrongs in a way, not because we necessarily in sort of we're to blame there's a tendency to say well we're not to blame that was really that's an our ancestors but we can instead just frame it as a positive say you know we may not be to blame but we can take responsibility we can take responsibility to help to heal to build the bridges to to really to really do this this deeper work of of clearing out this history you know, the, the Germans actually have set a great example for us in terms of really taking it seriously as a country to make sure people are educated and aware of and really have faced the the shadow side of the um of of german the german psychology which which manifested in the form of the holocaust and that and because they've really done that shadow work as a people i think they're they're far more peaceful and prosperous and uh clear than they, than they've than they've ever been that's part of why they're really leading the way with europe now is because they've done this deeper shadow work Wow, that's wonderful to hear. Um, <clears throat> when you were writing this book, did it just keep growing and growing and growing? <laughs> it just seems like there's so many subjects that we have to touch. <clears throat> yeah, well, that's part of always the challenge. I mean, there, I probably wrote, you know, at least two or three times as many words as, as ended up in the book. And so I would write a new chapter or go in a new direction. And then, you know, even in the last stage, I, I pared out a, quite a number because – there's a recognition that you know we we live in an information age where people are have shorter attention spans and having things be more succinct and more focused um, tends to be better. So I wanted to create more of a manifesto rather than an encyclopedia, and to really just touch on the broad brushstrokes of how we need to face our national shadow. How do we need to reform our uh, in our, our approach to to money and finance and conscious capitalism, how to and then how to actually build new structures into into how into our government that uh, that help us to amplify innovation and innovate more quickly. So I've got this concept in there of solutions councils, where you could have a mayor, uh, you could have a city have a 
Solutions Council or a state or, or the White House that is essentially a group of experts who, who are going to research what is the real innovation happening in terms of government policy, things that can be replicated uh, in each area, whether that's in the education system or criminal justice system. Frankly, most elected officials are so busy just trying to handle the stuff that's on their desk and the, the demands in front of them that they don't have time to track what's happening in Cleveland or Topeka or in, in Finland, for that matter. So they're not necessarily aware of the real innovations that are happening, the social innovations happening around the world. So we need to have more of a mechanism for, for people to harvest the best of what's happening elsewhere and then bring that innovation into to government, which makes it more evolutionary, it makes it more responsive, and it ultimately makes it a lot smarter because you know most you know, there's just a lot there's a lot of great stuff happening in the world and we just need to to know about it and replicate it faster so that um so that our government becomes more effective and smarter rather than uh rather than larger and and less effective which is part of where the right um has legitimate gripe yeah they don't even have time to read what's in a bill <laughs> Exactly, you know, and part of that is that we've we've created a system where our our legislators have to spend about four hours a day fundraising now, which means you don't have time to actually read the legislation, which means it 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 goes to the twenty five year old uh, twenty five year old interns to make a decision on important national matters, the policy that affect a lot of people. So we need to we need to have some deep reforms of getting money out of politics as well, so that we can really have uh, we can have the best people, the most noble-minded uh, public servants to have the time to really think thoughtfully about how do we how do we design uh, policies and programs that truly work for the good of all. You know what I see sometimes, and maybe this is a cynical part of me, but um, I see politicians going in with that in mind. They go in and they want to you know do everything for our country, and they're you know they're noble and. And within a year, they change. <laughs> so that needs. To- yeah. Well, I, I think that's. I think that's not cynical. It's. It's. It's just an accurate, clear scene of what's happening. Is that when you have a culture that's gotten dysfunctional, it's very hard to sh- for one person to shift that culture, and it actually requires not just the one person in the culture, but it takes those of us on the outside as well to help shift it. So, we all have a vested stake in in cleaning up the political culture of America because, yeah, you have some really noble-minded um, individuals who, who can who can just kind of throw their hands up and give up and just surrender to this, well, this is the way it is, and I'm just going to have to navigate. I mean, it's the same reason why in developing world countries that have corruption problems, it's not like th- their people are intrinsically more corrupt, but they've if once corruption is part of the system, it's part of the Accept socially acceptable norms, then people just do it because, well, why not? I see my, you know, this other guy's doing it. Why don't I do it too? And so they're asking for bribes and handouts. And so it's you have to be, we have to be really vigilant about what we what becomes acceptable part of a political culture. So we don't have the same level of, um, you know, bribery going on as in developing world. But but there's a form of that with lobbyist influence, <laughs> because because we because there's a, a strong need for a lot of money to get reelected then there's a, there's a slow bending of priorities towards those who are have the money that can 
fund the the re-election drives and keep people in power. And so that's that's a big distortion on our democracy. And it's one our founding fathers would have been very clear that we have to we have to address and we have to take like serious steps. And I think that the level of a constitutional amendment to get the money out of politics is imperative, so that we have. Uh, we have people making the best decisions for the greater good rather than the decisions that are going to please the people who can who can pay for the next election cycle. Do you see the younger people, like the college students and the next generation, seems to me like they uh, are moving with more heart than the older generation. I don't know if I, I'm just hoping well, I think for that. that's, that's, tr- that's think. always there's always a certain measure of truth in that that it's like that after people people can be more um have a have a more of a sense of possibility when you're young and then if you you've gotten you've gotten frustrated in your experience, you've had th- things not work out in different ways, it's easier to close down and become more cynical and jaded and and uh about the the ability to change. And so there's there's a refreshing that happens with every generation of like a new wave of people like okay fresh faced idealism and we can make this happen and 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 yes we oftentimes the those visions of the youth are are fantastic a direction to move towards and what we have to do is become more patient and and more practical about how to make those changes in a way that's that's very um measured that builds upon the past rather than tries to just revolutionarily overthrow the old that because that almost always tries that almost always creates a backlash so you have to kind of say okay change on a national level happens fairly slowly we have to be patient about it we've got to build towards it and that's where the wisdom of the elders tends to come in but we don't want to squash the idealism because that 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 idealism is what opens our our field of vision to a a future a desired future and and a potential greatness a potential new level of greatness of our country so that's it's important to fan the flames of that while also helping the next generation better understand the pathways to create change in a, in a step-by-step way well where i saw that mainly was when uh, bernie was running for office he was the the oldest yet he had the uh the youngest supporters which is great, you know, and, and Bernie in many ways is sort of, um, I think he's he's painted a picture of a future America that, that is important to, to bring into the real dialogue. It's not that everybody wants to see the same future for, for, many, for many folks. His vision is too socialistic and has too big, too big of a government um, role to play. But what it's done is it, it's actually made that, that the whole exploration of his ideas and the possibility of American America evolving into a direction that has has more generosity on certain fronts and um, and made that part of the discourse. It's made a part of our something that we can seriously consider because when you see wow, there's there's this many people who can get very excited by the by the vision that Bernie is painting. Um, that means that you know in a dem- democracy, it's like. With, if if the population keeps moving in that direction that is the that is the direction we'll go as america and i think what will ultimately happen is that he's ex- expanded our sense of the possible america 
in a more democratic socialist direction. Other people might expand it in a more libertarian direction, as um, some factions of the Republican Party, they want more freedoms um, in different ways from less interference of the government in certain areas of life. And that might be that there's expansions in different directions. And what ultimately gets worked out in the uh, sausage works of government when it works well is that we're compromising. We're finding we're finding a balance point between the extremes, and we're finding a, a middle range in which the uh, the greatest number can have the, the greatest freedom, but also we have we take care of the greatest number and and have fewer people slip through the cracks and and really be um, you know really on the streets or destitute or broken down or you know that we don't want to have such the level of breakdown that we have either. We want to have a broader prosperity in which more people are participating. Now, when you were writing the book, did because did any new things come into you while you were writing? You go, oh, that's great! I need to put that in the book. That you oh, had absolutely. I mean, for me, for me, like you know, it sounds a little weird, but for me, writing is more of a process of discovery than telling what I already know. Because I find that the very act of saying, you know, okay, well, I, I think I need to write something about this area, and then I'll I'll just start writing off the top of my head, and and I feel like what happens is there's a higher octave of consciousness, you know, you can think of a soul or higher self that starts to move through the my fingers, and that starts to come through is like, so I find myself sometimes discovering new ideas and potentials, and and uh, and it forces me to think more deeply because I'll get it on the page and I'll be like, well, you know, that feels like it's pretty good, but it needs more in this direction. And so the sculpting of ideas in the written form is a is a process of of creation and design and growth and discovery. So it's kind of it's exciting to write, not just to say, okay, well, these are the things I already know, and I'm just going to put them in a nice format for you to hear them. It's like, no, I'm learning and growing through the writing. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, I started the first the first chapters and had the first concept for it like over ten years ago. Um, now the truth is, the last six years I've been full throttle creating the Shift Network and growing that into a mid-sized company. Um, so I haven't had a lot of extra time. So there were definitely years in there where I did almost nothing on it, and then there's been some spurts where I'll work on this or that, and then. Once I got clear a bit over a year ago that it needed to come out this year during the election cycle, then I got more motivated and said, all right, I got to take all these different, the draft and all the different elements and thread them together. And, you know, I probably wrote 50% more and cut another half and cut here and added here. And there's tons of chapters that ended up on the cutting room floor because I just felt like, well, it's, I just didn't have the time to go into it. It wasn't the highest priority. Since to, you know to, what I'm really talking about is upleveling the whole operating system of our country. So that means that has a lot of different facets to it. It's not just uh, we need to heal our political discourse. It's like no, we need to we need to have a different approach to addressing global warming. We have a different approach to peace building. A different approach to um, how do we um, how do we deal with banking? And so I would go into different areas, and some areas just ended up, like, you know, I, there, there are elements of reforming the uh, our healthcare system that I felt like it was just I got in a little over my head. I didn't feel like I was adding <laughs> enough value, and so I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to cut that whole chapter, and I'm going to focus on the things where I really do feel like I can add some value and provoke some new thinking. And I, I don't expect it. people are everybody's going to agree with everything that I've shared there. In fact. 
the core thesis of the book is that having a diversity of viewpoints is what what actually allows evolution to happen faster, provided the, those diversity of viewpoints can work together effectively. So I, I, I welcome and, and want people to have different ideas uh, than I do and to disagree with my ideas, but I also want that to be generative, so there's, it's more additive. Uh, I'll give an example uh, that was helpful just in the, in the final phase. I wanted to have some re- um, high-level Republican leaders who endorsed the book, and so I outreached to various people and eventually got connected to Rich Toffel, who's the founder of the Log Cabin Republicans. Um, you know, very thoughtful guy, interesting guy, one of the early proponents of gay marriage, um, and really has helped to be thinking about how do we evolve a more enlightened Republican Party, which is important. It's not just about uh, enlightened Democrats. It's enlightened Republicans. It's like how do each natural po- side of the polarity go to the next level? And so I outreached to him, and he really liked a lot of the book, but he had some strong critiques of certain ways that I depicted conservative values and priorities. And, and so I got him on the phone, and, and I really listened to him. And I took in his feedback, and I made a bunch of changes. And, and then he ended up coming around and writing a pretty strong endorsement of the book. So I felt like I learned from that engagement with him, and I, I wanted the critiques because it basically helped to strengthen my overall thesis and, and allow it to be heard in a different way by people who are more conservative in their orientation. Uh, maybe some of our listeners um, don't know about the Shift Network. Do you want to talk a little bit about that so people can get? Yeah. Well, with the Shift Network, it's at theshiftnetwork.com. The we we feature a lot of uh, today's brightest lights and teachers. We've had over a thousand different innovators, pioneers, um, teachers, you know, authors, people who are creating new paradigms of business, healthcare peace building. We've featured um, over a thousand in in, uh, our summits. We do about 16 major summits a year. And then we also have uh, about 75 paid programs that really go deeper into personal growth and transformation. And and we've got spiritual teachers from different lineages, and we've got peace building trainings and uh, parenting trainings and women's trainings. And so, so, and a lot of stuff is free. You know, 95% of the people who participate in the Shift Network are, just participate in free things. And then we've got paid upsells that allow people to do to go much deeper with a particular area, whether that's enlightened business or or shamanism. So we uh, yeah. try to balance between it's it's all you know change change ourselves and change the world and and in a good way we try to be very positive and forward looking and saying what's good that's emerging and how do we amplify that and how do we become better change agents and and really fulfill our soul purpose for coming here so and we're very ecumenical we've got we got people from you know we've got people who are teaching about the leading edge of Christianity and um, uh, Islam and um, Buddhism and yoga and you know we we've got the whole range of different kind of perspectives. Well, I've been on your email emailing list since the beginning and I really enjoy it. Well, I want to tell everybody that's listening because uh East West Bookstore is in our neighborhood and that you're going to be at the East West Bookstore tonight at 7:30 in Mountain View and talking about your book and and I, so if people want to Call. I would suggest you call the East West Bookstore. It's six five zero nine eight eight 
9800 again 6509889800 because they have they can just have so many people so call ahead and get a ticket and thank you so, so much yeah it's I look forward to meeting you in person yes and uh I talked to you just before our interview started and we were talking about something you're offering the launch of your new book and you want to talk about that because it's so exciting it's it's has i can't believe what you're offering if somebody buys a book it's unbelievable yeah. well, we want to we want to sweeten it because we want we want to make a big impact and and have a lot of folks um you know the the launch of a book it brings a lot of awareness and the media and attention so we've really created a lot of extra bonuses from um a, a American Evolution series with 24 different pioneers from people like Marianne Williamson and Joan Blades and Greg Braden and Andrew Harvey um so that's going to be happening as a weekly series through the election we also have the uh women on the edge of evolution there's other other offerings just for buying just for buying a single book that's worth really over $500 and then we've got different levels for people who want to get more engaged and create discussion groups and living room conversations or house parties or even larger events and then uh, you buy a larger chunk of books to help make that happen and uh, and then we give you a lot of bonuses you know many many thousands of dollars of bonuses so you can find all the details on that at sacredamerica.net forward slash special or if you just go to sacredamerica.net you can link from the home page too so sacredamerica.net so I, I would, you know, with everything that you, <laughs> that you can get just for buying the book, it's just unbelievable. I would suggest all our listeners to to go on sacredamerica.net slash special and buy the book and get all these extra goodies. Great. Well, we, we'll see you tonight um, at East West Bookstore. And do you have any one last message before we leave? I think what I want to close with is just for each of you who are listening to to reconnect with the part of you that truly loves America and has a deep relationship with um, with the mission of creating more oneness in the world and really creating a shining example of what is possible on planet Earth. And so to reconnect with that part, use that as fuel to 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 bring into whatever engagement you feel called to as a citizen to 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 let go of some of the cynicism and um disappointment and to reconnect with your passion to to have America fulfill its true and highest calling and you you have a beautiful role in that and others will as well so if you can just build bridges get engaged really take on healing our political culture and evolving our democracy as a part of your personal practice of uh spirituality, of transformation, of engagement. That, that, that's how we're really going to create uh, a better America and ultimately a better world. And I bet from people reading your book, there's going to be a lot of new ideas coming <laughs> just by reading the book. I mean, it's a lot of new ideas, new solutions. So it's a very powerful movement that this book is creating. Indeed, so, that uh, is the goal. So thank you for helping to foster it as well. We would just want to let everybody know that we've been talking to uh, Stephen Dinan and I mean Dinan. Dinan, I'm yeah. sorry, Dinan. And uh, be sure to go see him at the Mountain View in Mountain View at the East West Bookstore. And his new book title is Sacred America, Sacred World, 
fulfilling our mission and service to all. What a mission. We should all get on board. <laughs> so well, thank, thank you so much. so much. It's been a joy and a pleasure to be with you. I know. You're so busy, and I just got really excited when I found out you're going to be on our show. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. Have a beautiful day. Uh-huh. Have a great day, too. Bye. Bye-bye. Saturdays in the garage from Advance Auto Parts. You know, with an older car, you should be using Castrol GTX High Mileage. All right, car genius. Why is that? Well, it helps extend the life of your engine, and you can pick up five quarts for only $20.99. You know, a lot for a guy who refilled his wiper fluid with antifreeze. Hey, even geniuses make mistakes sometimes. Uh-huh. You know your shirt is on Inside Out. Advance Auto Parts. Let's get you back on the road. Also available at participating CarQuest Auto Parts. See store for details.